Hi, and welcome to Fado, an audio adventure into fantasy, folklore, and fairy tales. I'm John, your host, and thanks for dropping in. Today, we're going back to our roots a bit and covering a classic fairy tale. Today's episode is Master Cat, better known as Puss in Boots, and it originates in Italy, as far as I can tell, but has become a more widespread European tale since the 1500s. The earliest written version is from Giovanni Francesco Straparola in 1533, and it was called Constantino Fortunato, or Lucky Constantino. But the most famous version today is that of Charles Perrault, and I'm reading a version of that one for you. And now, as published in Andrew Lang's Blue Fairy Book in 1889, Puss in Boots. There was a miller who left no more estate to the three sons he had than his mill, his ass, and his cat. The partition was soon made. Neither Scrivener nor attorney was sent for. They would soon have eaten up all the poor patrimony. The eldest had the mill, the second the ass, and the youngest nothing but the cat. The poor young fellow was quite comfortless at having so poor a lot. My brothers, said he, may get their living handsomely enough by joining their stocks together, but for my part, when I have eaten up my cat and made a muff of his skin, I must die of hunger. The cat, who heard all this, but made as if he did not, said to him with a grave and serious air, Do not thus afflict yourself, my good master. You have nothing else to do but to give me a bag and get a pair of boots made for me that I may scamper through the dirt and the brambles, and you shall see that you have not so bad a portion in me as you imagine. The cat's master did not build very much upon what he said. He had often seen him play a great many cunning tricks to catch rats and mice, as when he used to hang by the heels or hide himself in the meal— and make as if he were dead, so that he did not altogether despair of his affording him some help in his miserable condition. When the cat had what he asked for, he booted himself very gallantly, and putting his bag about his neck, he held the strings of it in his two forepaws, and went into a warren where was great abundance of rabbits. He put bran and sow-thistle into his bag, and stretching out at length, as if he had been dead, He waited for some young rabbits, not yet acquainted with the deceits of the world, to come and rummage his bag for what he had put into it. Scarce was he lain down, but he had what he wanted. A rash and foolish young rabbit jumped into his bag, and Monsieur Puss, immediately drawing close the strings, took and killed him without pity. Proud of his prey, he went with it to the palace and asked to speak with his majesty. He was shown upstairs into the king's apartment, and, making a low reverence, said to him, "'I have brought you, sir, a rabbit of the warren, which my noble lord, the Marquis of Carabas, for that was the title which Puss was pleased to give his master, has commanded me to present to your majesty from him.' "'Tell thy master,' said the king, "'that I thank him, and that he does me a great deal of pleasure.' Another time he went and hid himself among some standing corn, holding still his bag open, and when a brace of partridges ran into it he drew the strings and so caught them both. 
he went and made a present of these to the king, as he had done before of the rabbit which he took in the warren. The king, in like manner, received the partridges with great pleasure, and ordered him some money for drink. The cat continued for two or three months thus to carry his majesty, from time to time, game of his master's taking. One day in particular, when he knew for certain that he was to take the air along the riverside, with his daughter, the most beautiful princess in the world, he said to his master, "'If you will follow my advice, your fortune is made. You have nothing else to do but go and wash yourself in the river, in that part I shall show you, and leave the rest to me.' The Marquis of Carabas did what the cat advised him to, without knowing why or wherefore. While he was washing, the king passed by, and the cat began to cry out, "'Help! Help! My lord Marquis of Carabas is going to be drowned!' At this noise the king put his head out of the coach-window, and, finding it was the cat who had so often brought him such good game, he commanded his guards to run immediately to the assistance of his lordship, the Marquis of Carabas. While they were drawing the poor Marquis out of the river, the cat came up to the coach and told the king that, while his master was washing, there came by some rogues, who went off with his clothes, though he had cried out, Thieves! Thieves! several times as loud as he could. This cunning cat had hidden them under a great stone. The king immediately commanded the officers of his wardrobe to run and fetch one of his best suits for the Lord Marquis of Carabas. The king caressed him after a very extraordinary manner, and as the fine clothes he had given him extremely set off his good mien, for he was well made and very handsome in his person, the king's daughter took a secret inclination to him, and the Marquis of Carabas had no sooner cast two or three respectful and somewhat tender glances, but she fell in love with him to distraction. The king would needs have him come into the coach and take part of the airing. The cat, quite overjoyed to see his project begin to succeed, marched on before, and, meeting with some countrymen who were mowing a meadow, he said to them, "'Good people, you who are mowing, if you do not tell the king that the meadow you mow belongs to my lord Marquis of Carabas, you shall be chopped as small as herbs for the pot.' The king did not fail asking of the mowers to whom the meadow they were mowing belonged. "'To my lord Marquis of Carabas,' answered they together, for the cat's threats had made them terribly afraid. "'You see, sir,' said the Marquis, "'this is a meadow which never fails to yield a plentiful harvest every year.' The master cat, who went still on before, met with some reapers, and said to them, "'Good people, you who are reaping, if you do not tell the king that all this corn belongs to the Marquis of Carabas, you shall be chopped as small as herbs for the pot.' The king, who passed by a moment after, would needs know to whom all that corn which he then saw did belong. To my lord Marquis of Carabas, replied the reapers, and the king was very well pleased with it, as well as the Marquis, whom he congratulated thereupon. The master cat, who went always before, said the same words to all he met, and the king was astonished at the vast estates of my lord Marquis of Carabas. Monsieur Puss came at last to a stately castle, the master of which was an ogre, the richest had ever been known, for all the lands which the king had then gone over belonged to this castle. The cat, who had taken care to inform himself who this ogre was and what he could do, 
asked to speak with him, saying he could not pass so near his castle without having the honor of paying his respects to him. The ogre received him as civilly as an ogre could do, and made him sit down. "'I have been assured,' said the cat, "'that you have the gift of being able to change yourself into all sorts of creatures you have a mind to. You can, for example, transform yourself into a lion, or elephant, and the like.' "'That is true,' answered the ogre very briskly. "'And to convince you, you shall see me now become a lion.' Puss was so sadly terrified at the sight of a lion so near him that he immediately got into the gutter, not without abundance of trouble and danger, because of his boots, which were of no use at all to him in walking upon the tiles. A little while after, when Puss saw that the ogre had resumed his natural form, he came down and owned that he had been very much frightened. "'I have been moreover informed,' said the cat, "'but I know not how to believe it,' that you have also the power to take on you the shape of the smallest animals, for example, to change yourself into a rat or a mouse, but I must own to you I take this to be impossible. Impossible, cried the ogre, you shall see that presently. And at the same time he changed himself into a mouse and began to run about the floor. Puss no sooner perceived this, but he fell upon him and ate him up. Meanwhile, the king, who saw, as he passed this fine castle of the ogres, had a mind to go into it. Puss, who heard the noise of his majesty's coach running over the drawbridge, ran out, and said to the king, "'Your majesty is welcome to this castle of my lord, Marquis of Carabas.' "'What, my lord Marquis?' cried the king. "'And does this castle also belong to you?' There can be nothing finer than this court, and all the stately buildings which surround it. Let us go into it, if you please. The Marquis gave his hand to the princess, and followed the king, who went first. They passed into a spacious hall, where they found a magnificent collation, which the ogre had prepared for his friends, who were that very day to visit him, but dared not to enter, knowing the king was there. His Majesty was perfectly charmed with the good qualities of my Lord Marquis of Carabas, as was his daughter, who had fallen violently in love with him, and, seeing the vast estate he possessed, said to him, after having drunk five or six glasses, "'It will be owing to yourself only, my Lord Marquis, if you are not my son-in-law.' The Marquis, making several low bows, accepted the honour which His Majesty conferred upon him, and forthwith, that very same day, married the princess. Puss became a great lord, and never ran after mice any more, but only for his diversion. I hope that you aren't too disappointed that I didn't break out my best Antonio Banderas impression for the voice of Monsieur Puss. I was tempted, but I couldn't justify a Spanish accent from a clearly French cat with Italian origins. I mean, I have my historical integrity to protect. Now, this one is interesting to me. The first thing I notice is that the moral of this one is a bit murky. On one hand, it's good to be clever and think ahead. On the other, dishonesty pays off better than teamwork and the wise use of an inheritance. The version I read didn't have it, but at the end of the Perot version, there is a moral stated in verse, like you often see. Let me read you that translation from D.L. Ashlyman's archive. Be the advantage never so great 
of owning a superb estate. From sire to son descended, young men oft find on industry, combined with ingenuity, they'd better have depended. If the son of a miller so quickly could gain the heart of a princess, it seems pretty plain, with good looks and good manners and some aid from dress, the humblest need not quite despair of success. At first I thought it was some kind of comment on how it was fine to deceive or manipulate nobility, because they didn't deserve their station, or something of that nature. But I don't think that's the whole story. Maybe it was something that Charles Perrault changed to suit his audience, but in the original Italian story, the cat is said to be a fairy in disguise, who feels sorry for his master, in that case Constantino. He acts in a much similar way to Perrault's version, but he's far less threatening, at least directly. Don't get me wrong, he still lies his way to wealth and riches, but in the end it's not an ogre at the castle, but a soldier who has met an unfortunate end, and our clever cat doesn't have to eat anyone. So while our master cat may be dishonest in the original story, he's far less murderous and threatening. I find it interesting that Perrault took the part about the cat being a fairy out of the story, but replaced the already dead soldier with a noble ogre. There just might be some commentary there, and it may well be that it's understood that the cat is a fairy just based on the way he acts. It's also true that cats were, as they still are sometimes, associated with witches and devils, and there's probably a layer of that superstition here as well. In any event, I think the most important takeaway is that it's not exactly important how much you have, as long as you use your resources well. And it's okay to lie to and deceive the nobility, provided that you come away with it married to a princess and living in a nice castle. Before we wrap up today, I want to take a second to invite you to something fun for the holidays. In just a few days, on Thanksgiving night, I'll be starting a live read-through of A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. This coming Thursday, and each Thursday after that, ending on Christmas Eve, I'll bring you a stave of the classic story of Ebenezer Scrooge and his harrowing visits by the ghosts of Christmas past, present, and future. You can subscribe to my brand new channel over on YouTube now, and you'll be ready to go this Thursday night, about 9 p.m. Eastern. I hope to see you then. And don't worry, if you'd rather listen to the story in my usual podcast format, I'll be releasing it that way too, on my regular Sunday morning schedule. I've got you covered for the holidays. Now, if you're having fun listening to Fido, you should definitely subscribe on your podcast platform of choice. I'm on Apple, Google, Spotify, and Amazon. Don't forget to share and leave a review if you like what you're hearing. If you leave me comments or questions, I might even be able to read them on the air. You can also keep up and follow me on Facebook as well as Instagram. I'm at Fado Podcast. And if you want to support me more directly, you can become a patron. You can find me on Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast. There will be behind-the-scenes content, early access to upcoming episodes, and also merch. I have stickers, and if you become a patron, I can guarantee you one in your membership letter. That's right, I'll send you a personally handwritten note in the mail with a sticker. Also, if you join, you'll get a mention here on the show. Now this week, I have a question from patron David Cooper who asks, 
I think all of your King Arthur sections have been read from Beatrice Clay. Is there a reason you chose that specifically? The only King Arthur book I've read is The Once and Future King, published in 1953. Not to push that book specifically, but more out of curiosity, is Beatrice Clay's book felt to be more true to the original Arthurian legend, or are there any other reasons to choose that? That's a good question, David, and the main reason I chose the Beatrice Clay retellings is that they are a concise, boiled-down version of the tale that fits well within the format of the show. And I think they also managed to preserve a bit of the antiquity of the language and the spirit of King Arthur without being impossible to understand. Also, Beatrice Clay's retellings are from 1920 and well within the public domain, whereas The Once and Future King is not, being from 1953. So it's much simpler to read the older stories and avoid any legal issues that might arise. I hope that answers your question, and I'm glad you asked it. Thank you. All right, that brings us to the end of episode 31. Watch for episode 32 coming out on November 29th. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you once upon a next time.